Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, just for the season, Lord. Christmas time is such a, uh, I enjoy this, this season, the lights, the music, uh, just the, the family, the treats, um, all of the things uh, connected uh, to Christmas. And Father, this isn't a holiday that we necessarily find in the Bible, but it's, an, it's a holiday that we celebrate sort of marking um, the incarnation of, of Christ. And so, Father, as we look at our passage today, uh, recognizing um, that this letter is written to those who have believed, Father, uh, for, mo- for a large portion of us in this room, we have reached the place where we agree with you that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. We agree that his uh, death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient uh, to pay for the, the penalty that was due us, uh, that he was uh, a propitiation, that he satisfied the wrath um, towards sin. And so, Father, for those of us who have come to believe, we rejoice uh, and in recognizing the incarnation of Jesus, we, we have hope uh, for his return. And Father, we pray that as we go through this section today, that you would help us uh, to see what was said, um, that, to understand how it applies to our lives. Father, that we would uh, have clarity with our relationship with you, um, that we would love you better each day, that we would honor you with our lives that you would help us to find joy in walking in obedience with you, and that we would love one another well in Christ. And Father, for those who maybe are here that are auditing Christianity, that are still sort of investigating who Jesus is, I pray, Father, that you would um, help them to, to discover the answers that they need regarding who Jesus is, regarding their, their life. Uh, we, just, we just sang a song uh, dealing with a reality that each one of us will faith, face, that when I die, what happens? And so for those of us who believe, we just want Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that you would uh, just help individuals that are searching, Lord, to discover what Jesus offers and the hope that they can have in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. First John chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the, the world our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I prayed, we're a couple weeks out from Christmas. I think we're like, I don't know if it's two weeks down. I was going to say two. Melanie gave me the the, the victory sign. So um, like, it's just a, it, it's, I, I love the traditions I don't put up Christmas tree lights, but I'm super thankful for people who do, you know, like I, I figure like nobody sees our house and it's like, it's like, why bother? So we have a Christmas tree and the inside's kind of decorated, but I, I love seeing the lights. I love seeing in Elvis Christmas carols. I love the, the sweets. 
Um, there's just so much about this this holiday that just kind of brings joy. Now, it's not really a holiday that we that we see in the Bible, but for whatever reason, culturally, um, the world has sort of embraced uh, Christmas. And it's a time to celebrate the incarnation of Christ, his coming, not it's his birth, but it's really uh, Jesus always existed in eternity past, but it's when he came and took on the form of a man and lived his life, and so we celebrate his coming. Um, but many people don't even understand what Christmas or the incarnation is really about. In addition to outsiders, there are many people within the Christian faith who really lack the assurance of of understanding what Jesus has provided to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, I was confused or lacked that assurance for many, many years because the reality is, is like the, the offer of the gospel, it doesn't make sense in our economy. It, it doesn't seem right that you can, you can be born of sin, that you can have sin, and that somebody else can pay for your transgressions. When, when somebody wrongs us, we like them to suffer the consequence, not somebody else. I mean, and, and so in this situation, the offer is, is that Jesus came because he loves you and that he gave his life as a ransom for you. This whole letter of the Gospel of John, is the desire is that those who know Jesus as their Savior, that they would have assurance uh, that they are his. This is First John 5.13, I believe, is, the, is sort of the... The, the pinnacle of of first John, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you would know that you have eternal life. The apostle John wants us to know that our relationship in Christ is secure. And so we begin our passage today. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again. And so right away we have this first this first phrase, whoever believes, whosoever uh, it's a very uh, wide net that's been cast to humanity that uh, all humanity has this, this opportunity to respond to the gospel. Uh, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this word Christ, uh, I don't want to shock anybody here, but Christ isn't Jesus's last name. It's very like there's a lot of my life when I thought, oh, Jesus Christ is Mr. Christ. It's kind of how I perceived it. I'm not making fun of anybody, but I make it fun of myself because I literally kind of just thought it was his first and last name because that's how we operate. Uh, but it's uh, Jesus, and his title is Christ. Uh, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word of, of Messiah. And so this is significant. Uh, technically, we're going through Genesis right now. We've sort of taken a break, and we're going to restart of the new year, uh, get back to Genesis but in the beginning pages of Genesis, as we opened up our Bibles and we started at Genesis 1-1, it wasn't very long, about the second chapter, I believe, or the third chapter, where sin enters the world and things changed. And in the midst of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, right away as the consequence is being dealt to humanity, to creation, uh, God gives a promise in Genesis 3-15 that this Messiah would come. Um, if you're looking for like a, a reference in the Old Testament, I was like, oh, what's a reference in the Old Testament that I could point to? The reality is, is that the, the references in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah are overwhelming. I mean, it's just absolutely overwhelming. There's no like, 
one that I could just point to and say, oh, this is your like the softball one. It's just like everywhere from, you know, Isaiah 53 to Psalm 22. And they're just all through these great messianic passages in the Old Testament, uh, sort of highlighting, I'd like us to go to Luke uh, chapter 2. Instead of reading just like a passage or two sort of boring you with like all of these things sort of highlighting the the Old Testament's prophecy or statement that this Messiah would come, I thought I'd read from this passage after Jesus's birth. Uh, he makes his way to the temple as a, as, a, as a child with his parents, and we're introduced to two individuals. And I think these two individuals sort of highlight the expectation, uh, the longing that, that the nation of Israel, that the Jewish people, that they had for the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we read, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms, Simeon took him into his arms, and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. That's Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul until the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And then there was a second person. There was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee and to their own city of Nazareth, and we're told then that the, continu- the child continued to grow and to become strong and increasing in wisdom and grace, uh, and the grace of God was upon him. And so these two individuals, Simeon and Anna, uh, they sort of embody the nation of Israel. Uh, as they looked at the Old Testament, they knew that this Messiah was promised and that this, 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 this Redeemer would come. And they recognized that in this child of Jesus that he fulfilled all of these prophecies that they were just overwhelmed, that, that Simeon says, I can die now because God's promise to me has been fulfilled. Like, I've lived to see this promised Messiah. Simply, like, overwhelming. The author that we're reading today in John, the, the, he's the last remaining uh, apostle. Uh, he wrote a previous book, the Gospel of John, and at the end of that book, 
He says concerning everything that he wrote in the gospel of John. In John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he says the, the so what, the purpose of why he wrote the gospel of John. And he writes there, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the first part, we could easily just sort of roll over these five words or six words or however many they are. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, this is, this is huge. The Bible's claim is that Jesus is the Messiah that he existed in eternity past, that when you open up Genesis 1-1 and you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the word there is plural. And, and Colossians and other places in the Bible says that Jesus was then. Jesus in John 8-58 says, I, I am, I was, before Abraham, there I was. That this eternal God who existed forever in eternity past, something our minds cannot wrap themselves around, he took the form of a man. He lived his life perfectly without sin, and ultimately he was arrested, he was executed brutally, and then three days later, we know the story, he rose from the grave and appeared to many people. And so the the gospel is that Jesus did this for us, that he was our substitute, that he stood in our place. And because he was the Messiah, he wasn't just another man. If another man was to go to their death, another man can't atone for your sins because they too are also are sinners. And so the Bible makes this claim, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus' sacrifice is of value, as of worth. It can provide to you this redemption. He has the capacity to be your substitute. And then in believing in him, an exchange happens. Your life for his, God no longer sees you through your sinfulness. He sees the blood of Christ in your life that you... uh, that your sins have been done away with. Jesus's righteousness has been imputed or accredited to your account. It's a wonderful thing. And so John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again, that they are regenerated. Throughout John, he uses this phrase to be born again. The spirit of God enters you at belief. Uh, You're transformed from the inside out. Aiken says this on being born of God. Being born of God is a biblical birthmark or description of a Christian. It also is designed in scripture as being born again or born from above and regeneration. It is not an optional or secondary experience for a child of God. It is essential and initiatory. Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. To be a Christian is to be born again or born of God. If you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. However, if you will simply trust Jesus as your Messiah, believing him to be the very son of God who lived the life you should have lived but didn't, died the death you should have died, but now do not have to, and was raised from the dead to give you a salvation you do not deserve, you will indeed experience the supernatural work of God that is a new birth. And so what this is saying 
is that at that moment of belief, when you've heard the gospel, when you heard what Jesus did for you, this becomes effectual in your life when you have that aha, I understand what God is offering and I believe like that. The spirit of God, we're told, seals you within. You may have some experience. Most likely it's you just, it happens and you don't realize it and you learn about it later as you study and you realize, no, God has given me his spirit within me and that's why suddenly maybe the way I see things or when I go and do the things that I used to do, it doesn't bring the same sort of joy or contentment or peace that I previously had that we've been converted. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father, so again, whoever loves the Father, we're continuing from this group of people who have believed. Uh, The first phrase is really easy to understand, that whoever loves the Father, that's very simple. If you've received Christ, naturally, hand in hand, you love the Father because the Father has provided the Son. But then we have this phrase, in the New American Standard, it reads, loves the child born of God. Now, in your Bibles, as you're reading, if you see words that are italicized, I used to think that those were important words, but that's not what, what, what's going on there. If, if your words are italicized, so in this case, whoever loves the father loves the italicized word child born of him, that means that the word is not in the Greek and that it's inserted in the English language. And so there's there's... Anytime you're translating from one language to another, you're, there's always going to be difficulty. And so, so a number of translations, like the New American Standard, the Net Bible, the NIV, and I'm sure there's a slew of other ones, when you read this, it's very easy to read this and sort of understand whoever loves the Father loves the child of God. This must be Jesus that we're talking about, uh, is born of him. But then if you read the ESV the New Living Translation, the New King James Version, and a smattering of other translations, it will lead you to conclude differently. It will lead you to conclude uh, that, that what it's saying, and I should have probably copied one of those other translations down just so I'd have it, but it, I, it, Gunner's translation of the other translations out of my memory shooting from the hip It reads something like, whoever loves the father loves the children born of him. And so it's funny as you teach the Bible, like last time I think I went through this 10 years ago, I kind of concluded that I thought it was talking about Jesus. This year, I'm older, wiser. I had something different for breakfast this morning. I I, I now think that it probably is more of the second option, that it's referring to the children of God, namely because if we continue uh, reading, we'll see that in the context, verse 2 says, by this we know that we love the children of God. I don't know why I didn't catch that last time. It seems to, there seems to be this connection that whoever loves the father, you're going to love your father's kids also. Um, and so this is very interesting. Um, I'll never really forget the moment that I became a dad. She's right over there, you know. Uh, so Grace was born, and it was like, wow, this is like kind of crazy. They're letting us take her home, like without like any adult supervision, and and it's like you 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 get home and it's like, hey, I'm dad. This is mom. 
welcome to the family. You know? And it was it was cool. But then when Ellie came around, there was like child number two. And it was like then it was like then we we had the experience taking her home wasn't as like horrifying as like the first one. Like I we kind of knew what we were doing at this point. And so then it was like super exciting to get to the place where Grace was. Then we'd be like, hey, Ellie, meet your big sister. And it like for us, it was like this joy, like I can still see it like in vivid memory of I see a blue couch. I see Grace with this big old smile on her face. You know, this this little sister of hers that like took up her whole whole lap. And then it's like number three came around. Then then Gideon shows up. And then it's like, hey, bring him home. Hey, Gideon, meet your older sisters. And it was like everybody's all glowing and happy and super excited about receiving the, the new baby into the family. Uh, then Titus came, and it was like we chucked him in the room. It's like, hey, meet the gang. You know, there's your pack. Get used to them. And, and uh, the baby's always the baby that gets all the attention. And, and it's like, hey, this is your crew. And then, like, as parents, like, we want nothing more than for our kids to get along and to love each other and to treat each other right. And if we see that one kid is, like, acting wrong towards another kid, like, we really value having unity, love, and peace within our family and with our kids. And so if we see a foul by one kid, we'll get involved and say, hey, 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 like we love Jesus in this family. We, got, we don't play by these rules. You, you need to recognize what you did was wrong. You need to repent with God. You need to confess to him. You need to make right with your sibling. And as I look at that picture, this is kind of like what God wants from us. It's like you're out in the world, you're an enemy of God. Suddenly one day you believe in an American Christianity, we sort of seem to think that uh, our faith is this lone ranger sport, that we're just sort of like it's the Wild West and we can go live and do whatever we want on our own. The churches can do whatever they want. We're not accountable to anyone or anything. My relationship is between me and God, right? That's how we think. When I read the Bible, God's like, you're born, you're reborn at conversion. When you trust in God, you're this new baby. And it's like, God's like, hey, meet your brothers and sisters. I want you to get along with them. Sure, there's going to be fouls. Sure, there's going to be times when you're not all getting along. But I want you all to get along. This was Jesus' prayer in John 17, right? What did he pray before he ascended into heaven? He prayed that there would be unity within the body of Christ. And as there was unity, not uniformity, doesn't mean that we're all the same, doesn't mean that we all have the same, same views and we all think the same, but we're united in Christ. And as we're united in Christ, the world sees that. And he says, as they see unity within the body of Christ, they'll know that you're of me because to have unity in this way is supernatural. And so he says here, whoever loves the father loves the children born of him. And this is a case that John's been making throughout this. This is a case that Jesus was making. When you summarize the two greatest commands in the whole Old Testament, what did Jesus say? To, to love God with all of your heart and to love others the same. And then Jesus would up the ante uh, in John chapter 13. He would say, I want you to love others as I have loved you. John 13, 34 and 35, I believe. And so we're told 
that by this, so whoever loves the Father loves the children of this. By this, loving the Father, loving the children. By this, we know that we love the children of God. And this is kind of why I think that that previous verse is connected because context, context, context is the most important thing when you're studying the Bible. You have to look at the surrounding verses. You have to see what's being said in context. And so in context, it seems to be, by this, we know we love the children of God. Uh, then he's going to sort of send this shocking statement, to, to me at least. By this, we know that. Okay, so by this, we, we love the Father, we love his children, or it'll be evidenced within us more, more spe- uh, precisely. By this, we know that we love the children of God. So what Gunnar is expecting is that you kind to one another, you help one another out. I'm expecting a bunch of like actions of things that we do to one another that demonstrates uh, how we love one another. But John's going to take a direction that I didn't see coming. He's going to say, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments, which just seems kind of weird. Like, so he's saying if for us to love one another the best or the way that God wants us to, we know that we love one another when we're loving God and we're obeying his commandments. Huh. It's kind of shocking, at least for me. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like that's the way that we accomplish it. And he continues, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And so uh, then I have some chicken scratch here trying to figure out. I, I wasn't like I was hoping by now I'd know which way to go. Um, I, so I think what it's saying is like if you really want to love one another well, if you want to be um, like a good, a good husband, a good parent, a good grandparent, a good child, a good friend within the body of Christ, the, the best way that you can do that is, is not to, to look at others, but to look at your relationship with God, to, to really pursue him with everything that you have, to see what he desires in your life. And I'm convinced that as we pursue God and we yield our lives to him and what he desires from us, his spirit within us, totally transforms us. We, we no longer see the world like we used to see the world. We don't see things the way we used to see things. We don't interact with one another the way we used to act with one another apart from Christ. That as we yield our lives to him, his spirit has his way in our lives. And then the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, there's nine of them, and I run out of steam about there. The fruit of the spirit begins to manifest, manifest itself in our lives. And then as the, the Spirit of God is leading us and guiding us and his fruit is bearing witness in our life, where do we see this? In our relationships. Suddenly somebody does something to you and it's like, man, I normally would be pretty ticked off by that or I would handle it this way, but now I'm not handling it that way. I don't know why that is. It's because something has changed within me. Something has taken root, 
And the gunner that I was 30 years ago is no longer the gunner that I am today. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's because of what he is doing within me. And because of this change, selling the things that I look as burdensome, like honoring God with my life and his commands, these things that used to be like a, like a wet blanket on your fun, now seem to be the things that bring the most amount of joy and satisfaction within my life. Charles Swindoll says this, note the commands of God are not burdensome. Uh, This term is used when Jesus said of the Pharisees, they tie heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. I I was reading and my brain was, my my REM was going a little bit slower because I was thinking about something else. Yesterday morning at the men's Bible study, we're, we're going through Mark, and, and the headquarters had come to see the guys, to figure out what's going on. And I think that they were going to like uh, attack them for other reasons, and before they even get started, the, the disciples with Jesus are just like eating snacks without even washing their hands, not like what for cleanliness, but going through the ritual of stuff. And they're so like taken back, like, hey, what is, like, Jesus, we got a question. Why don't, why don't your guys go through this like religious cleansing before they eat? And then Mark inserts this huge like parenthetical statement, like, hey, when they're talking about this, they're not talking about hygiene. They're, they had these uh, religious traditions that they go from head to toe before they eat a meal, sort of making sure that they're going through this process so that they externally are staying clean. And then Jesus goes after them and says, hey, listen, like you're not, you're not just because you're doing this doesn't make you clean. And so this burdensome, this yoke, is, is the word that they use for teaching. Jesus said, my yoke is not burdensome. They would do all of this stuff that would weigh you down. And they telling you that if you want to get right with God, if you want to live for him, if you want to do these things, and you have to do all of these things. And this, unfortunately, is how we in our minds think that God is working with us that it's a bunch of rules that we have to follow. Unless we follow those rules, then God's not happy with us. And if we don't do uh, certain things or we don't abstain from certain things, then God isn't pleased with us. And the list can grow very, very long, and we can never feel like we've quite attained what it is that we think that God wants with us from us. And so therefore, we think that we don't really have that assurance. We don't, we don't, we, it's just terrible. Let's say back to Swindoll's quote, I interrupted him. Sorry, Chuck. Um, <laughs> when motivated by God, when motivated by a love enabled by the Spirit, the commands of God are not a burden but a joy. They flow from a heart filled with love for the Father and love for his spiritual children. I think this is huge. And so God says that the best way that we can love one another is by loving him and observing his commandments. And I heard this illustration on this, that the church is like a, a boat, and that all of us are on the back of the boat. It's, a, it's like a flatbed boat. And on the back of the boat, each person has one anchor. And as you're loving God and walking with him, your anchor stands on the boat. But as you stray into disobedience, your anchor gets thrown out of the back of the boat. And then as more and more people are walking in disobedience, their anchors are going back out of the back of the boat. And so the picture is, is that as the church is 
yielding themselves to God, as they're walking with God, loving God, the church is able to move forward and do the things that God wants because we are all humbled before him. We have all surrendered our lives to him. We are, 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 we are all seeking his will, not our own will, sacrificially, and the boat can move forward. But as we follow our flesh, as we enter sin, one anchor goes out, another anchor goes out. And then it's like the, whole, the testimony of the church, the church's ability to stay focused on the main things is slowed down, is dragged down because individuals are seeking their own interests, not the interests of above. And so really, this is like mind-boggling to me. It's counterintuitive. By this, we know we love the children of God. Gunnar thinks that this is a way to love God in the flesh, doing all of these things. But what the word of God tells us, we, when we love God and observes, observe his commandments, we are loving his children and him well. And so our aim is to do that, to seek him. And then he goes on to say, verse 4, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in this passage, it's beautiful. And if you're sort of divorced from history, it's very easy to kind of make this verse go a different direction because it sounds really good, right? The word overcome or overcomes over, overcome is used once and over, overcomes is used twice. But this picture of like overcoming the world. And so from our flesh, I don't know about you, I kind of get the Rocky movie going in my head and I hear the, the movie and the training montage and it's just like we're conquering and we're taking charge and, and everything that we're doing, it's going our way. way. Uh, the world can't hold us down. You know, we're happy, wealthy, and wise. But unfortunately, this isn't the prosperity gospel. At the time that John wrote this, he's the last of the living apostles. And yet he writes, for whatever is born of God, if you're a child of God, you've overcome the world. He uses for, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Who has overcome the world but he who believes? So this, this whole picture, well, what did that look like for him? When I review, like, tradition and the history of what we know about the apostles, at this point, this is what we know. Matthew. At this point in history, Matthew had suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece due to his tremendous preaching to the lost. Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross, cross, according to church tradition, because he told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus Christ had died. James the Just, the leader of the church in Jerusalem and brother of Jesus, was thrown down more than 100 feet from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. When they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat James to death with a club. James the Greater was ultimately beheaded at Jerusalem. The Roman soldier who guarded James watched 
amazed as James defended his faith at his trial. Later, the officer walked beside James to the place of execution. Overcome by conviction, he declared his new faith to the judge and knelt beside James to accept beheading as a Christian. Bartholomew was whipped to death for his preaching in Armenia. Thomas was speared and died on one missionary journey trip. Jude, another brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows after refusing to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot, was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas, one of the groups of 70 disciples, was stoned to death at Salonicea, or Salonica, excuse me. Paul was tortured and then beheaded by the evil Emperor Nero at Rome in AD 67. John, the author of this gospel, was boiled in a huge oil basin during a wave of persecution in Rome. However, he was miraculously delivered from death. John was then sentenced sentenced, uh, to the mines on the prison island of Patmos where he wrote his prophetic book of Revelation. The apostle John was later freed and returned to serve as a bishop in modern Turkey. He died an old man, the only apostle to die peacefully. So I look at history, which has already happened by the time verse 4 is written. And then I read, for, what, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So when I read that, I realize that in my Christianity, in my worldview, my very American, because I'm American, I was born, bred, converted in America in this time in history, my understanding of the scriptures when I read this is so fleshly. Because I interpret this as overcoming the world. I interpret it the way that I would like this to mean, and that would be the prosperity gospel. Like in my flesh, I want this to mean that if you give your life to Jesus, that you're not going to have any problems, you're not going to have any conflicts, you're never going to have a medical bill, your bank account is going to be like the endless supply of chips at a Mexican restaurant that never run out, but that's not what it's like. Historically, people give their lives to Christ and things from a human perspective get worse. The persecution arises, your family goes after you. It gets very, very hard. And so then it like begs the question of like, what is he talking about? And I think Paul answers this question in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. The words of one of these men listed who would have his life taken for standing with Jesus. And what he says, but in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that overwhelmingly conquer is like this. We're dealing with the same word here, overcomers. And so our overcoming isn't from human terms. We're talking about things that are far more important than the stuff that we can see, feel, touch in this life. What he's talking about here, I believe, is as we sang that last song that we just sang, when I come to die, then what? For those of us who have come to understand what Jesus did on the cross, we recognize that Jesus is the answer. That ultimately, that's where our peace, our security, like everything can fall apart. We can go home and find leaky ceilings because we never get rain not to cause a panic in everybody here, but we're like, oh, did they build our houses to handle rain? Like, I don't even, you know what I mean? Like, if I was a builder, I wouldn't have. Um, I wouldn't have even thought about it. Um, that's why I'm not a builder. Um, but when we come to die, this ultimately is like, what is the gospel saying? The Bible makes a pretty strong case against us that we are sinners fallen from God, that we've missed the mark, that we're separated. He is holy. We are not. There is nothing that you can do to bridge that gap. But the one who is able to bridge that gap was Jesus, and he did bridge the gap. Amen. And the only thing that he's placed on your shoulders is to respond. It's not about works. It's by faith. Charles Swindoll says this, the new birth by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone removes us from the ranks of the world and places us into God's family. In that new relationship, which which comes solely by grace through faith, we have been given the possibility of keeping the commands of God to love. We have been equipped with an inner enablement. God not only gives us the commands, but he also works in us to observe them by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with this? Like I just have on my paper, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This text is forcing us to evaluate him. So either you have him or you do not have him. The Bible wants us to know that Jesus paid the penalty for you and there's a gift available to you that's greater than any gift that's under your Christmas tree. So if you haven't received it, my prayer is that you would do your homework, do whatever you need to do to answer the questions. I think that there are answers to your questions. The answers will never resolve that gap that can only be filled in by faith. But once that transaction of faith happens, we're told that you're no longer an enemy of God, you're a child of God. And that you're transformed from the inside out. And through God's spirit, the things, your desires, the things that you hope for, your dreams, things will begin to change, not because you're trying to make them change, but because he is changing you from the inside out. And then he places us into participation, into his work that we are a part of the team. And he has... He has things for us to do. He's, he's gifted you in Christ with gifts that, that he's given to use within the body of Christ. We're to live it out. 
There's security in his work. There's no security in our own works. And this is what we celebrate during Christmas. This is why we're so joyful that Jesus came because he came to give us life. And next week, in the next couple of weeks, we'll see this more and more. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We praise you. Father, I, I thank you for, in the midst of the complexity of 1 John, there's, there's a simplicity. The simplicity is, is that Jesus is our answer for, for life and hope and security with you. We can cast our fears, our burdens upon him. And we can receive grace and peace that is only available from you. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to love you more completely each day, that our focus on you would become clearer, that we would hear your voice, that we would respond to the things which you are asking us to do. May we see your commandments in the scripture and may they become a joy to us so that ultimately we honor you with our lives and that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ well and that we ultimately reflect your goodness to the world around us, which is so desperately in need of your goodness. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.